All right. Joan has just been a sweetheart. We're uh, just so honored to be able to uh, partner with uh, such quality people, so committed, uh, sold out uh, for the kingdom. And, and so she's faithfully been just doing the work of God in West Africa. So I encourage you after the service to stop by and say hi to her. Um, and as God leads you, support her, uh, cover her in prayer and what she does and where she goes. Uh, that's that's where we are. Uh, she's an extension of, uh, of us. Amen. I'm uh, Greg, one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's good to uh, see all of you here tonight. Um, if you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you, and if you'd like to find out more about uh, this church and what we're called to do and all of that sort of thing, stop by at the Hub. That's all the tables out there in the gathering area. Tell them you're visiting, and we've got a packet of, of, of information uh, and a CD and other things that we'd like to share with you. Please drop your cell phones, pagers, iPods, noisemakers, chainsaws, whatever you brought with you. I'd appreciate it. And uh, if anyone starts to uh, be a distraction of any sort, uh, we encourage you to, to take them out in the gathering area. You can still be part of the service that way. Um, see, by way of announcements, uh, I, I think, oh, Christmas Eve. Yes, our, our Christmas Eve service is on Christmas Eve this year. And uh, they'll be, uh, we're having two services, three and five. And so I encourage you to come and be a part of that. Uh, seems like God shows up in a unique, special way on those things. Um, and then just uh, read, read the bulletin. Uh, get on the website. Know what's going on around there. And uh, keep us covered in prayer. Whatever you see there is stuff that we need prayer for. Because nothing of kingdom value happens outside of prayer. Also, we have every year had a thing where um, we, we are always encouraging people to, uh, when we're celebrating the birthday of our Lord, to, uh, to do it in a way that would honor the Lord. And, um, and so we, we've, every year of the last three years, held up a special uh, project, special ministry that um, uh, we're encouraging you to give to. Last year, we, had a, uh, we, we aimed at raising $26,000 to turn uh, our, our church into a place where we could have project homes and um, uh, have a few other things going on. We ended up raising $109,000. It was wonderful. And um, as a result of that, we now have a job skills training uh, thing here. Uh, we're working with the city. Uh, we've had a number of things we to overcome this last year to get this to happen, but we're uh, heading towards having Project Home here in the spring. Uh, we're still working with the city on having a food shelf and a daycare center uh, here, hopefully, uh, in the near future. So all that has made it possible, and um, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. So this year... We're, we're calling this Half for Haiti. Um, and um, we're asking you to consider, we're not interested in the particular amount necessarily, it's kind of just a clever tag, Half for Haiti, but uh, as we're looking at spending uh, on our own families, uh, to think about giving that much to Haiti or some other thing that God leads you to. But we're holding up Haiti here because uh, they were really hit hard with Hurricane Sandy, wiped out all of their crops um, they were in a fragile state already because of the 2010 earthquake. Uh, they've had uh, cholera and people living in tents. The tent city is about as big as it was the day after the earthquake in, in rampant pro poverty. Um, and this hurricane, even though they didn't take a direct hit from it, it was devastating to them. It didn't make the papers because New York and New Jersey also got hit, and uh, that kind of stole the headlines. But it's a, a serious situation they're in. Uh, the UN reports that there's 450,000 people that are at risk of severe malnutrition 
because of this flooding. And so what we want to do is, our goal is to raise $40,000 um, to give to this relief effort. And we'll be working with COFED, which we just highlighted last week or the week before, which is a ministry out of Wilton Hills Church that is on the ground there, uh, working primarily in Lugu. We've had a long-time relationship with them. And they'll be working to feed people in the short term and then to help replant gardens for the long term. And the good thing about working with an agency that is part of your own body is that you know that every penny you give goes to the folks who need it. Uh, there's there's uh, nothing that there's no overhead on this. And so we encourage you to to pray about how God might lead you in this. Um, uh, talk with your family and friends uh, about uh, how God might be leading all of you to uh, sacrifice for these folks in this situation. Um, the thing is, is, is I was just talking to Shelley about this this other day. It's, it's crazy that, and probably most of us do this to some degree, where you are asking the question, uh, what can I find for? Or what, what, kind, of, what kind of gift can I, I carve off for this person? We have to look for things to give for a lot of the people that we buy for on Christmas. That's crazy. Uh, because we're in a world where there are folks like this in these, these desperate situations. So we're struggling. Our, we have anxiety because we have such a hard time finding something that they might be able to use. Uh, and uh, here there are folks who are, are dying of malnutrition. And so uh, if we're going to celebrate the birthday of Jesus in a way that would really bring honor to him, well, it wouldn't, wouldn't look like that. And so just pray about how God would lead you in that uh, endeavor. All right? All right, well, we're in the Advent season uh, here. We're, we've never made much of the Advent season, but this year we're, we kind of are. Um, we got back into the book of Colossians for a little bit, uh, but now we're going to uh, do a three-week part thing here on, uh, the, on the Advent. What does that mean? And so to whet our appetites, uh, we have a little video that we'd like to show you. Watch this. Sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy.
It's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. For kids, you're just tortured. Uh, one kid almost ran it up his nose. Uh, so hard to wait. Um, delayed gratification. It's one of the hardest things to learn. Uh, and yet, it's such a necessity of life. You know, there's, there's actually been studies done on this where they uh, took the kids who, uh, and following them out through their life, the kids who were able to delay gratification. Um, tended to grow up to be adults who are more stable in their relationships, tended to have more overall happiness, uh, tended to be more successful in life, had less, uh, uh, statistically, less inclination towards crime than those who uh, couldn't delay gratification. It's really an essential part of our overall health, to be able to postpone uh, a short-term gratification for a long-term purpose. Uh, It really taps into kind of a profound aspect of the kingdom. That's what... Advent season really is all about. And so we're entitling uh, this message, uh, Marshmallow Advent. This is Trevor's uh, title, Marshmallow Advent. Uh, You can kind of get at the aspect of the kingdom that this relates to with this uh, teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6. He says, so when you give to the needy, and note there, he says, when you give, not if you give. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And you have this kind of motif that you you find dozens of times actually in the teachings of Jesus where he contrasts those who have the reward now with those who will have a reward later on. And the dynamic he puts out there is that you can grab onto reward now, but you don't have it later on, or you can postpone and have reward later on, but that means you don't have it now. Uh, Grab for it now, lose it later. Uh, Lose it now, have it later. Um, The kingdom is all about delayed gratification. And since we're in this Advent season, we thought it'd be good to take a look at this. The word Advent comes from the Latin, Adventus, which means coming. The coming of the Lord. And in traditional Christianity, it's the holy season of four weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, It's a time of year that's to teach us the spiritual discipline of waiting. And waiting is... Actually, a, a spiritual discipline. It's to remind us that we're not to be trying to grab all of our life now. We're not to be trying to have our reward now. We're not to be trying to eat our marshmallow now. Uh, but rather, we're to stay hungry. The Advent season is there to tell us, to teach us, that there's a spiritual growth that comes from waiting, delayed gratification. 
not trying to be complete and have everything right here and now, knowing that it's coming with the second coming of our Lord. Jesus came on the first Christmas morning as a, as a baby to, uh, to display the, the full character of God. He came that first time to uh, bring an end to spiritual oppression and to free human beings from their sin and their bondage. But the world won't look, won't manifest that liberation until he comes back a second time and then manifest the truth of what he, in principle, accomplished the first time. And until that happens, we're to be a people, all who are submitted to Jesus, are to be a people who yearn for that coming. We're to be a people who live to prepare the way for that coming. We're the the equivalent of John the Baptist with the first coming of the Lord. We're to prepare the way for the return of our Lord. And we do it by living in a way that brings about his will on earth as it is in heaven. I sometimes see the work that the church is to be doing is sort of laying down the runway strip for our Lord to return. And in doing that, we're to stay hungry. We're to forego our marshmallows now. Um, And looking with a hungry, yearning heart for the advent of our Lord's second coming. So we're going to be reflecting on, on what does that mean? Uh, what does it do to us in this Advent season? And to carry us through on this, we're going to be focusing on some of the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a collection of writings found in this little book, God is in His Manger. God is in the manger. Uh, various things that Bonhoeffer said about the Advent season. But before I introduce him to you, I want to cover this in prayer. So pray with me here. Father, I, I, God, thank you that uh, you have given us this promise, this hope uh, that we hang on to and look forward to your return. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, we are uh, people, most of us here, who are a people who are come from a culture that um, hates waiting, hates delayed gratification, and we're conditioned to resist it. But Lord, we pray that you would use this message to mature us, deepen us, strengthen us, Uh, God, make us a people who are not trying to grab our best life now, but God, are trusting that, uh, Lord, you'll bring all things to completion when you return. And deepen us in every other way we need deepening. God, use this message to do it. I pray for everyone in this auditorium. And uh, God, if this happens to be the the message that's podcast, I pray for all of our podrishioners, God, that you'd be opening up their hearts and minds as well. And Holy Spirit, come and anoint your word. Anoint it. Infuse it with your power and your authority in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Uh, I, I, I love this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, his writings have had a, a, a real profound impact on my own thinking as they have on, on so many others. In fact, my, my book, Repenting of Religion, it was started as a, uh, it was supposed to be a commentary on Bonhoeffer's book, Ethics. And it, it kind of evolved as the writing process went on and it ended up standing on its own. But I still quote from Bonhoeffer on almost every page, uh, not just from his ethics, but from other writings as well. Uh, but he's just, I, I just think, one of the most profound thinkers in the history of the church. Um, he was born in 1906 to a fairly well-to-do family uh, with a prestigious academic background. And he could have very easily had a life of relative comfort. He was on the fast track to becoming a, a very young, uh, reputable, uh, professional theologian, a uh, brilliant university professor. But he pretty much kissed it all away at the age of 27 in 1933. 
Hitler had just come into power. And um, he was making divine claims for himself. He was seen as almost, not really almost, but as a messianic figure among many of the Germans. And Bonhoeffer, age of 27, was giving a, a, a sermon uh, on the radio. And he begins to denounce, not by name, but begins to denounce any ruler who would ever put himself in a messianic role, any ruler who would uh, claim unambiguously that, that they were the vehicle of God's providential working in the world. He said that is a mockery to God. And they ended up cutting him off the radio before he got done with his message. And within several weeks, he lost his position at the university where he was a professor. Um, there was uh, tension, to say the least, between him and the Nazi socialist uh, movement. Um, he spent the next 10 years traveling around. He, he uh, pastored a little church in London for a while, and then he went overseas and did some graduate work uh, at Union Seminary. Uh, in 1938, he felt called to go back to Germany, knowing that this could put his life in danger, but he felt called to go back there. And he oversaw this little seminary, uh, which was really a, a community of subversive radicals. Um, and um, in that time, as, as a pastor of this little community at the seminary, he wrote the book Life Together, which is his reflections on kingdom community based on his community life there uh, at the seminary. I encourage you, uh, if you're all interested in this, to get that book. All of his books are, are, are worth reading. Uh, during this time, after returning to Germany, he wrote Cost of Discipleship, another profound, uh, hard-hitting, insightful book. And he was working on his masterpiece, Ethics, that I mentioned earlier, when he was arrested in 1943. Never, never finished it. Um, for the last two years of his life, then, he was in prison. And facing this uncertain future, separated from his loved ones, having no security other than God, there he wrote some of his most profound stuff in the form of letters that he'd sent to friends. And so these are collected in, they're published eight years after his death. Uh, they're collected in a little volume called Letters and Papers from Prison. Profound set of, of, of writings, just dialoguing with, 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 with friends. And uh, in, the, in these letters, he introduces a lot of concepts that, that were to shape future Christianity. Like, he mentions there religionless Christianity. Um, that's where I, that inspired the title of my book, Repenting of Religion. I, I also inspired Bruxy's book, uh, The End of Religion. And nowadays you hear a lot about Christianity, true Christianity, the true kingdom being opposed to religion. But at the time of Bonhoeffer, that was a radically new concept, religionless Christianity. He was just a thinker ahead of his time. Tragically, in 1945, just weeks before Germany was to fold, and this just kind of shows the sickness of Hitler's mind. But when the end was inevitable, he ordered, as one of his last uh, commands, the execution of all political prisoners. And so Bonhoeffer and many others were rounded up. And um, he was, at the age of 39, hung. His last words, it's reported, were, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Most of the writings that we're looking at in God is in the manger uh, come from th this section of his life, this Advent season. Um, the, the, part of it is because he, he likened, he, the, he drew an analogy between his life in prison and Advent season. He says this at one point. He says, life in a prison cell may very well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes. The door is shut. 
and can only be opened from the outside. What he's getting at there is that we live in this broken, incomplete, painful world. We don't have the power to get out of this prison on our own. Uh, In fact, the more broken people try to fix the world, it seems the more they break it. The door to liberation for ourselves and for this world can only be opened from the outside. And that means to say it can only be fixed by the Lord coming and establishing His kingdom here on earth. Uh, It means that we have to live with patience and yearning and hope as John the Baptist preparing the way. Uh, Bonhoeffer saw this, this analogy between his life in the cell and the state of the world as it is now, waiting for the return of the Lord. There's two other passages I want us to look at as we uh, reflect on this. Yet one point says, Advent means being able to wait. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. Ain't that the truth? Another place he says, Advent can be celebrated. Listen to this. Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come. The Holy One Himself. God in the child in the manger. God is coming. Lord Jesus is coming. Christmas is coming. Rejoice, O Christendom. Excuse me, the Bonhoeffer is here capturing the heartbeat of the New Testament. Um, it runs throughout the New Testament. There's this attitude that no one there expects the world as it is now in this fallen, broken condition to complete them. No one's expecting completeness. In fact, throughout the, the New Testament, there's this pulse that they don't expect anything from this fallen world other than suffering and rejection. Which is why, throughout the New Testament, all of their hope is put on the coming of the Lord, on the coming kingdom. You, you, you find this expressed in a real profound way in Romans 8. And Paul says this, he goes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Truly I say they have the reward. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I want us to capture this dynamic here. On the one hand, we have the first fruits, Paul says. The first fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's a, a foretaste of heaven. And so it's true, as we sang a little bit earlier, that, that uh, those who are surrendered to Christ have within them a joy and a peace that the world can't possibly give. I got the joy, I got the joy, we sang. And that's true. But having the first fruits, I got the joy, this peace that passes understanding, doesn't change the fact that we live in a world that is a creation that is still subjected to bondage and decay and that groans as a woman in labor pains. And, Paul says, we ourselves groan inwardly. We're part of this groaning chorus of creation. We participate in the groan of creation in this fallen world. And that painful yearning, he's saying, is what, is what makes our hope all important. The hope becomes all important to the degree that we are in touch with this yearning, this groaning, this incompleteness on the inside. See, that means then that it's crucial that we get in touch with this yearning and we allow ourselves to feel this yearning. Because if we're comfortable now, 
we're not going to yearn for the future. If we, have our, if we enjoy our reward now, we're not looking for anything more to come. We're, if we're grabbing our life now, if we're feeling complete now, we don't yearn for further completeness. If we're grabbing hold of our life fully now, we're not longing for uh, a future fullness of life. And yet hope and patience is what the New Testament's founded on. It's absolutely vital that we get, that we allow ourselves to feel this yearning, this groaning. I don't know if I've ever felt the insight that Paul's communicating here and that Bonhoeffer's communicating, if I've ever felt it like I've, I felt it this last week. I, I don't know if it was uh, just the Lord preparing me for this message or, or, or what, but I, I had four straight nights uh, where I woke up at three in the morning wide awake. And, um, and that was it for the day. And every time I woke up in three in the morning, give or take 10 minutes, I felt I was supposed to just sit and in solitude and in silence, just wait. Wait for whatever. I, I tweeted about this uh, several times. It impacted me so much. And uh, so f- some of you who follow me on Twitter are going to anticipate a little bit of what I'm going to say here. But as I waited in silence and solitude, I got in touch with that inward groan that Paul talks about, that sense of incompleteness or spiritual poverty that Bonhoeffer's talking about. I tweeted this discovery. Clarity only comes when we patiently wait in silent solitude with a heart that is unafraid of pain and that yearns for untarnished truth. It's only as we wait in silence and solitude with a heart that is willing to, to face untarnished truth and face pain. That's when clarity comes. Otherwise... When we don't take time to be in silent solitude, we become shallow worldlings who, who we easily become shallow worldlings who just are living for the here and now, and we walk around in a fog without even knowing it. I patiently waited in silence and solitude for whatever would open up, whatever would arise, and I felt this painful void, this inward groaning, and it gave me, I felt a clarity about things that I I don't know if I've ever had it quite like this. We, I've talked about this in, in other messages uh, several years ago, that this uh, concept of Seinsacht. I always referred to it as Seinsucht, and then some German folks corrected me, Seinsacht. Uh, it it uh, means an indescribable longing for you know not what. We don't have a, a, a similar word in English. In fact, I'm told there's not a, another word like it on the, on the planet. It's an indescribable yearning for we know not what, what Seinsacht. I think it's sort of what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at when he says that God has set eternity in our hearts. There is this inbuilt yearning for eternity. This inbuilt yearning for what feels like our true home. A life that is free from the bondage of decay. A life that is free from sorrow, injustice, oppression. A life that seems we know that we were meant for this. Uh, where we are now, it's, it's this yearning for, for something that sets, that exposes this world for being off and incomplete and broken. It's a yearning for the advent of our Lord. But it feels like a, a longing for, like a happy faraway home that we can just sort of vaguely remember, or, or a dream that we, we, we sort of remember, but it's, it's faint, yet we yearn for it. It's a feeling that I think gets activated sometimes with a certain scenery. As I shared several years ago, certain scenes just evoke this with me. I, I, I feel like I've been there before. Sometimes it's certain songs. Uh, Claude Debussy does it for me. Uh, 
certain songs, or even certain sounds, or even certain aromas can do it. All of a sudden, you, there's this reverie, especially around Christmas time, where I, I think that having so many poignant memories, it, it, they, it sort of marks the irretrievable passing of the years, which is what makes Christmas, for many of us at least, sort of a bittersweet holiday. The irretrievable passing of the years. This inner yearning, it is, I believe, a God-given, God-given homing device. And it's there to always remind us that we're destined for a world that's much better than this one. Amen. And, but to truly live with hope, to live in a way where, where we do a significant, significant degree hang on hope, means that we've got to, we've got to let ourselves feel sein sagt. We've got to get in touch with that inner void and that inner incompleteness and allow ourselves to feel it. In a culture which tells us to run away from that sort of thing, we've got to be a people, a kingdom people, who put aside the marshmallow right now, the happy buzz right now, in order to get in touch with this, this inner hunger, to feel that hunger, to create space, to feel that painful incompleteness, that yearning for home that longing for the return of our Lord. This week, four straight nights, in the fourth watch of the night, three o'clock to six in the morning, I just was more acutely aware than I've ever been, I think, that just in the knowledge that whatever I accomplish, whatever sermons I might preach, whatever book I might write, however, whatever impression I might make, whatever impact I might have, I was just acutely aware that, that, that none of that's going to touch that core incompleteness. I was acutely aware that however long I live and whatever I might do, I'm going to die incomplete. But see, that awareness creates in me a yearning for the coming of the one who will release me from this prison from the outside and, and who will bring a, complete, a completeness to me that I can't have this side of the world. That's how it's supposed to be. I, as I sat there in silent solitude in the fourth watch of the night for four evenings straight, four mornings straight, I, I felt more acutely than I think I ever have just how quickly my life is passing. And I felt more acutely than ever the sorrow over loved ones that have already passed. And I had the acute pain of realizing that everybody I hold dear, everyone I love, there are two passing away and before long they'll be gone. And we always know that, but there's a world of difference between knowing something intellectually and allowing yourselves to feel it. Amen. Allowing ourselves to feel it. And I, 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 I intentionally wanted to feel it as deeply as I could. And so here I am, Thursday, 4 o'clock in the morning, crying for no other reason than I know that, that all my loved ones are going to die unless the advent of the Lord comes in, in this lifetime. But see, there's something wrong with that, and we should feel pain over that. And see, that awareness makes me long for the world when... There'll be no more decay of time and there'll be no more uh, separation from loved ones like this. Our, our hope is always proportioned to the depth of our yearning. Amen. And according to the New Testament, while we have a joy and a peace that the world can't give, that doesn't negate or compromise the yearning, the incompleteness, the void that's there and will be there until the Lord comes and sets up His kingdom as well as done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. As I sat there in silence and solitude in the fourth watch of the night, facing untarnished truth, I gained more clarity than I think I've ever had before about how 
about the, my own sin, about my own fallenness, my own brokenness. I was just painfully aware that I'm not all that I know I could be. I'm painfully aware that I fall short of my own ideals, and maybe I always will. I'm painfully aware that um, I'm in desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness, and I am utterly hopeless without a Savior. I'm spiritually impoverished. I'm desperately in need, as, as Bonhoeffer said. And see, that makes me long for a time when I'll no longer be broken, and I'll no longer be fragmented, and I'll no longer struggle with sin, and I'll be completely whole. The yearning gives rise to hope, which creates in us patience. We all have this void in our soul, don't we? The sign sucked. And even though it's painful to do so, it's so, so important that we make space in our life to embrace it. Because it's only when, it's only when we embrace this, when we embrace our painful incompleteness, that we're motivated to really live in hope to someday be made complete. It's only when we become aware of, get in touch with, and allow ourselves to feel the inner emptiness that we really can see the emptiness of the hustle-bustle world of busyness. It's only when we allow ourselves to experience deeply that inner emptiness that we can avoid becoming ourselves little worldlings of the here and now who are just part of the hustle-bustle world. It's only by letting ourselves feel this inner zine soup that we can keep from living trivial, meaningless lives that just are perpetually distracted by a million silly activities and filling ourselves with a million empty idols. It's only by finding the time for silent solitude to face that truth that we get clarity about our own fallenness and our own brokenness and our own desperate need for a Savior. It's only by feeling this inner hunger, letting ourselves really feel it, that we become fully human and we can empathize with others and have compassion on others and our transformed into the likeness of of Jesus Christ. By making time to become acutely aware of our prison, and only by taking time, making space to become acutely aware of our own inner prison, do we genuinely and authentically long to be released from the prison. To see ourselves and our world set free. To see the advent of our Lord and the establishment of His kingdom. It's only when we allow ourselves to feel profound dissatisfaction with the world as it is now that we genuinely long for a world where it will no longer have the pain and the sorrows and the severity of of seeing loved ones pass on. Only when we allow ourselves to feel the full dissatisfaction of the world, we long for the world where there will be no more sickness and death and wars or hatred or poverty or racism, cancer, aging, all the nightmares of the world. The truth is, that that painful part of us, that painful Zeinsug, that void, is, I think, the most profoundly human part of us. It's a gift of God. It's a homing device that keeps us hungry for God. And it's the only thing that will keep us from becoming little trivial worldlings of the here and now. But it only works if we allow ourselves to feel it. Who goes out of their way to feel pain? Uh, we do. Because it's the only way to keep from getting sucked in uh, to the point where we think that our prison is our home. Now, we have to always remember, intentionally, go out of our way to remember the pain of the prison, precisely remember that it's a prison and it can only be locked from the other side. And so we yearn for it to be unlocked. 
Everything about our culture conditions us not to do this, to make space, to pursue, pursue this acquaintance with Zeinsucht. We live in a, in a, in a culture that is... Um, well, Bonhoeffer said that, that uh, people in his age have forgotten the art of waiting, lost the art of waiting. waiting. If that was true of Germany in 1943, I think it's ten times as true of, in America in 2012. We're conditioned by a culture that trains us, conditions us to just be trivial worldlings who run from pain, who wait for nothing. We act as little toddlers trying to fill up every need right now. We want our marshmallows. We're conditioned. Just crave that. Our whole economy and the whole culture is predicated on what one author labeled the, the, the market of dissatisfaction. I love that phrase, the market of dissatisfaction. Where on the one hand, it promises to, to meet our needs. On the other hand, we're perpetually conditioned to always feel like we have more needs. Great system. So we end up being rats on the treadmill, perpetually chasing the elusive cheese of ever greatest, greater satisfaction. We're, we're conditioned by the culture that the same, the same author said, it makes us experts at dissatisfaction remediation. Dissatisfaction remediation. We know how to remedy our own dissatisfaction. So we don't like a store, well, we push the button and we get a new store. We don't like the car, we push the button and get a new car. We don't like the house, we push the button, we get a new, new house. We don't like our clothes, push the button, get new clothes. You know, TV set, get a new TV set. You don't like the worship, push the button, you get yourself a new church. Two sermons in a row you don't like, push the button, you get yourself a new preacher. You know, that's just how it runs now. So we're not only, we don't only want our marshmallows now, we want more and more marshmallows, we want better marshmallows, fluffier marshmallows, tastier marshmallows, and we're addicted to it. Rats on a treadmill perpetually chasing more marshmallows, fluffier marshmallows, more tasty marshmallows. Our world is a training ground for trivial worldlings of the here and now who run from pain, who run from solitude, who run from silence, always chasing the more, the better, the bigger. Rats on a treadmill. And see, what Bonhoeffer is telling us, what the Apostle Paul is telling us, what the whole New Testament is screaming to us is saying, stop. Stop, get off the treadmill, embrace the incompleteness, stay hungry. Intentionally make space in your life to feel the hunger, to feel the Zeinsacht, to feel the incompleteness, to feel the yearning. Don't try to suppress it, run away from it, hide it, medicate it, feel it. You see, and here's the paradox. Paradox is that when we stop trying to feel full, we find this incredible peace in the midst of our incompleteness. See, if you, if you frame your life like you're supposed to have your marshmallow now and you're supposed to feel full and you're supposed to feel complete and you're supposed to be happy, if you frame your life like that, well then you're going to be forever disappointed, restless, and miserable. But see, if you, in, if you instead frame your life as this fallen prison. And um, you frame your life with the awareness that it can only be unlocked from the outside. And you understand that God wants to use this fallen circumstance to grow us, to deepen us, to mature us. Well, then there's an acceptance. Then there's a peace. Then there's a hope. Now you're looking for the return of the Lord. And see, that is the disposition that the Lord wants us to have. Not expecting this world to 
complete us? No, expecting to suffer, expecting rejection, knowing that the reward is coming. And so we pray with the Apostle Paul, come quickly, come quickly, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We've got to create the space to retreat from the hustle and bustle of the world and find silence and solitude and waiting to get in touch with the Seinsucht, to feel and embrace the incompleteness and the yearning and the groaning. And just like in ordinary life, as the studies have shown with these kids, this is the key to maturity. I I, I don't believe we'll ever mature unless we're creating space like this and staying in touch with the emptiness. Without this, we'll remain perpetual toddlers, worldlings of the here and now whose hope goes no deeper than trying to get our next felt need met. The Advent season is the time for learning how to wait, the spiritual discipline of waiting. And so I want to hear, as the pastor of Woodland Hills Church, I want to encourage us all to make this commitment. And this Advent season, and hopefully it will start a pattern. They say it takes three weeks to make a habit. we got three weeks here. Hopefully it will be a habit for the rest of our life. But to take 15 minutes a day to do nothing but sit in silence and solitude and get in touch with that groaning, that yearning, that Zeinsucht, and to have a commitment to let ourselves feel it. Uh, it, it really is nothing more than just a, a commitment to face reality um, and to do it with, with ruthless honesty. I, I, I find it helpful to sit and at, just ask the question, what is real? What is real? And, um, and just wait for an answer. Just, just watch whatever arises. And whatever rises, whatever clarity you're given, offer it up to God. Embrace it and offer it up to God. That's all this exercise is about. It's very important that you don't insert a conversation into it. Uh, It's very important that you you set aside that impulse to chatter about it within your brain, uh, to to judge it, uh, or to make excuses for it, or to make promises around it. I promise God I won't do anything uh, you know, to any kind of chatter around it, um, or to feel shame about it. No, remember that, that God knows all of this already. All right? You, you maybe are going to discover, in fact, I'm sure you will discover things about yourself uh, that you didn't know before, but God already knows it, and He already has told you on Calvary that He loves you with a perfect love. So you're not going to increase your points by making promises about this, that, or other thing. The purpose for this is to just feel it, to just experience it profoundly. And, and, and to allow yourself to feel the emptiness, the yearning that's there. Because that very experience of feeling that gives you clarity. And that very experience of feeling that is what deepens you and uh, matures you and grows you. And so it makes you more fully human. It's, it, it will wake you up to the shallowness of the hustle-bustle world. It will wake you up to the ways in which you've been too self-reliant. You haven't been dependent upon God. It will wake you up to ways that maybe you're not yet conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And it will, it will move you in that direction. And most certainly, as we spend time just waiting, practicing the spiritual discipline of waiting, asking what is real, allowing ourselves to experience the Zion sucked, uh, as we do that, it will make us more passionate, passionate about waiting for the return of our Lord. So that we can pray with passion, the way the Apostle Paul prayed, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Are you willing to make that commitment? All right, I'm going to close here in prayer, and I want you to, if this is a commitment you're willing to make, uh, 
make it to the Lord right here tonight. I find that doing this first thing in the morning, even before you get out of bed, is the best way. There's no, not yet the, the clutter of the hustle-bustle world, but if that doesn't work for you, then find a different time. But wherever it is, silence and solitude, alone with God, facing reality with a willingness to, to experience pain and a boldness to face untarnished truth. That's the commitment. If you're willing to do that, pray with me here. Even if you're not, pray with me. Maybe in the course of praying, God will put it on your heart to make the commitment. But Father, uh, we confess. Oh, and as I, as I close in prayer, could I ask the uh, prayer teams to come forward here? And I'll just say up front that if you, have, uh, if you want to pray about this or any other need, I encourage you to come forward and, and pray with these folks. Don't leave here with that uh, burden on you alone. Share it with them. But Abba, Father, uh, God, I know I'm not alone in confessing that more than I would like to uh, admit, I have uh, chosen the immediate marshmallow over allowing myself to experience uh, the reality of my brokenness, the reality of my emptiness, reality of pain. Um, I ask for your forgiveness on that. And God, we pray here that, Holy Spirit, you will be forming us to be a people who are, are not shallow worldlings of the here and now, who run from pain and who avoid silence and who detest solitude, but rather, God, call us into the wilderness. Uh, God, how we need to experience this. Um, and Holy Spirit, will you here seal on everyone's heart who's been able to make this commitment, seal it on their heart. And God, I pray even ahead of time that it would be a fruitful time for them. Not that we do it for it to get anything out of it, but God, I pray that you'd be teaching us and giving us clarity and increasing our maturity and deepening our character and, and get, making us the people who know how to wait. Free us from the prison of our culture, God, uh, the treadmill of, of just chasing the elusive more and better. And, and God, help us to be a unique, distinctive people who rather choose you and to just face reality and offer it up to you as we wait for your return. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go wait on the Lord. Amen.